Welcome to Smart Healthcare Safety from ECRI Institute, where we have real conversations about real safety issues in healthcare. I'm your host, Paul Anderson. More than 5,000 members across all care settings rely on us as an independent, trusted authority to improve the safety, quality, and cost-effectiveness of patient care. You can learn more about our unique capabilities to improve outcomes at www.ecri.org. Today, we're talking about post-incident investigations, which are a crucial part of a risk and safety program in any healthcare setting. We'll discuss why that's the case, tips for what to do right after an incident occurs, and some considerations for making sure it's all done in a way that protects the organization and future patients. To get us started, I'll ask our guest to introduce himself. Thanks, Paul. My name's Victor Rose, and I serve as Director of Aging Services here at ECRI Institute. What that means simply is that it's my job to help provider organizations and others find ways to reduce harm, reduce risk, improve quality, and increase safety. So, Vic, why don't we start uh, with some basics, I guess. Why is the post-event investigation so important? And I guess more to the point, why is it important that it's done well? That's a great question, Paul. When we think about the processes within our organizations to help prevent harm, Learning from actual incidents is mission critical and actually care critical, too. So when it comes to post-incident investigations, that's one of the tools that we use to gather facts about things that are happening in the organization. The reason they're so important is because if our facts aren't accurate, then the things that come afterwards aren't going to be accurate or effective as well. Sure. So, I mean, that makes sense. And I guess the question that I think about sometimes is, does every incident of every kind need to be investigated? Or is there some threshold where we say, well, you know, I need to investigate these, but not those? And reality is important to consider when we talk about practices such as investigations. Because in truth, no organization has the resources in either time or human to conduct investigations on every single incident or near miss. One of the tools that we use to help make that determination is a severity scale. So by looking at things such as the amount of harm associated with an incident, the frequency that it occurs within the organization, we can use that as a decision-making template to decide how deep of an investigation we need to conduct for that particular type of an incident. You sort of implied in what you just said is there's not a one-size-fits-all investigation either, right? There are depths of these things from, you'll use better words than me, but I'm from, from fairly superficial, right, to, to a really deep and thorough Absolutely. So on a superficial end, you know, we might just gather primary facts about an, an incident so that we can fill out an incident report and make notifications to a primary care physician or a family member. On the other end, if it's a more severe incident where there's harm or a greater potential for harm, we might actually do a much deeper investigation, gather more facts about the incident, speak with more people, gather more evidence, so that information can be used later in the post-incident process for QAPI or quality assurance and performance improvement practices. And that, that QAPI, of course, that's for at least for aging services providers, I guess specifically for nursing homes, that's required to, to do QAPI processes. It is. Actually, QAPI is now required by many CMS um, participating organizations, including some hospitals. Hmm. But that's from home and community-based services, such as home health and hospice, all the way through nursing homes. 
you know, Vic, you mentioned just there the CMS regulations that cover QAPI and, and the related processes and so on. Uh, do those apply just to skilled nursing facilities, or are they broader than that? And I know I mentioned not only skilled nursing, but home and community-based services like hospice and licensed home health, which are both CMS participating. But in truth, there's other service lines within the aging services continuum that should be thinking about these practices as well. One of the primary ones is assisted living. As we're starting to see acuity level shift from one setting to another, in other words, the amount of care we used to provide in skilled nursing might now be provided in assisted living or even at home with private duty caregivers. It means that these practices become more and more important in other settings as well, especially from, again, performance improvement standpoint. So it is not just applicable to a skilled nursing setting. Additionally, as assisted living is increasing in that acuity level, we do see um, additional states starting to write QAPI requirements into their assisted living regulations. So from ECRI's perspective, we would say there's benefit from having good, strong investigatory processes as part of your post-incident response practice um, throughout all service lines in the continuum. So I think of those different service lines you described. So I'm going to say from from home home and community-based services to independent living to assisted to skilled nursing, right along this continuum. And I think that as you move to a higher acuity level, you probably also move to a stronger centralized infrastructure for this. I'm imagining, you know, that the home, I'm trying to imagine trying to get consistent incident reporting in home care. It <laughs> must be a challenge. So, uh, I mean, does that raise an additional challenge for the investigatory process as well? Because in skilled nursing, you know, I, I'm more centralized, I think, in my imagination at least, right? And my staff are more centralized and my residents are more centralized and they're less independent. But by the time you get to home care, how are you going to investigate something that, you know, that is literally not on your property? <laughs> you know, so I'm, I'm imagining that that must be a challenge to do this. It is very much a challenge. And it's a good indication of how these practices change by service line. So when we go back to thinking about opportunities for improvement within the investigatory process, selection of those investigators is important because it's not possible for one single person to do all investigations from the superficial ones to the in-depth ones within an organization. So having programs in place that help to identify what positions have investigatory responsibilities, and providing the support and training to develop those skills is mission critical in an investigations process. You mentioned, Vic, you've been at this for a long time, and I know you've worked, even just in your time here at ECRI, with hundreds of different organizations in you know, how they conduct incident investigations. You've worked through them, as they, with them, I should say, as they investigate actual incidents. What are some really common pitfalls that you see folks fall into, either either they're recurring patterns that you see that, that people need to correct, or maybe they're um, you know, really one-off sort of really scary things that you've seen that we want to make sure we don't want anyone to do that? And there's a lot of things inside of organizations that can affect the quality of an investigation. One of the very first things is whether or not a provider organization even has practices to help guide investigations. Um, many times we see, you know, if the organization hasn't set aside policies and guidelines to help staff conduct these, these types of practices, that they either don't get done or they don't get done on time in a timely fashion, or they get done inaccurately. And each one of those situations can have a negative outcome for the person involved in the incident, for the staff, 
and for the, the organization itself reputationally. So fair to say it's not something we should be winging it on, right? We want to we really have a, a well-thought-out policy and procedure, not just policy, but a procedure that we're following. Very fair to say. Actually, that's another potential problem that can arise in investigatory processes. You know, to actually conduct an effective investigation, it takes training, and it takes um, patience, and it also takes practice. Mm. So, you know, when, when we assign investigatory responsibilities to an individual, we need to think about the fact that you shouldn't just wing it and that um, we should provide training and support for that person because it's such an important part of the um, risk management and quality improvement process. You know, you mentioned um, practice, and that, that makes me think of, um, you know, this idea that you can only investigate that which you know about, <laughs> you know, and it makes me wonder, um, do we see do we see, is there a correlation, in other words, in organizations that maybe struggle with investigation, is there a correlation that they also struggle with just incident reporting in the first place? Oh, absolutely, that correlation can exist, because what we don't know can actually hurt us. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. You know, we finished up a, recently a white paper that we're going to make available on the ECRI website later in October, and we'll uh, we'll have information at the end of the, of the podcast about how to access that, but... Uh, you know, one of the things we talked about in there was the need for a systems thinking approach to an instant investigation. And maybe we can start by just answering what does a systems thinking approach mean? So when we talk about a systems thinking approach, one of the primary things we want to do within a, a provider organization is consider practices like these in terms of reality. And so we don't want to just create an ide- idealistic solution or process for things. And in truth, There's a lot of things that go on when it comes to incidents. There's a lot of things that happen that build up, contributing factors, causal factors, and everything else. The investigation process actually helps us have a better systems approach to things, a more realistic solution so we're not chasing symptoms, but rather getting to root causes because it's based on finding facts first. So what's the difference? You mentioned chasing symptoms versus getting to root causes. What's what's the difference? Sometimes I use the analogy of having a toothache and taking an aspirin. Hmm. So that might take care of the pain, but there's usually an underlying problem. And if that underlying problem doesn't get addressed, then oftentimes we end up with a root canal. <laughs> I don't want that. Um, <laughs> so, so how do we translate that analogy then into to an incident investigation? Is, uh, what, what's the equivalent then of a symptom and you know, getting deeper? So by having good facts that come out of the investigatory process, we can actually start to look at underlying causes to those problems rather than just address the symptoms to those problems. And oftentimes we find when we're doing any kind of process improvement, if we don't get to root causes, the things that align in an environment or in practice that actually contribute to that incident or adverse event, then it tends to pop up elsewhere in the organization reoccurringly. So an, an example of a symptom, say my incident was, um, you know, administering the wrong medication. And, and an example of the symptom would be, um, you know, telling people to be quiet around Nurse Jones when she's administering medications, whereas maybe a root cause is getting deeper about, you know, why is it hard to identify the right medication or identify the right recipient? Or is, is that starting to get in the right direction? It absolutely is. And it's actually why investigations help to build a systems thinking approach. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that investigatory practices help us to do is focus on actual processes within the organization and move away from an environment that just blames a person involved in an incident. So a case in point, 
without investigations and without fact-finding, if I, as a nurse, make a medication error, it might just be tended to be treated as Vic was distracted, Vic wasn't paying attention. Conversely, investigations that help build fact patterns help us to look at something different. And in that case, it might not actually be Vic that made the mistake, but it might be an underlying process or problem in the system that contributed to that factor. So if we just name everything as a medication error and retrain Vic, we might not actually cure the problem, especially if it's a patient identification error in the system and we don't have the right things in place to make sure that we're getting the right medications to the right person at the right time. You know, I was at a conference um, just recently and we were talking about, you know, provider burnout. And one of the concepts, concepts that came up in that was this idea of, work as imagined versus work as done. And in, in that context, the idea was, um, you know, if people are constantly putting in place workarounds, um, you know, they're, they're, it's going to contribute ultimately to burnout because they're frustrated. They're going to get blamed, you know, to use your example, right? Uh, and I'm wondering if an incident investigation, while we're trying to get to root causes and not symptoms, can, ha- can help bring to light what is work as done instead of work as imagined. That is a great point, and it absolutely can. It's actually one of the things that contributes to the systems thinking approach because it can help to identify performance gaps. Mm-hmm. Things that we hoped would behave one way but actually behaved another. So the facts from an investigation can help in later stages of post-incident response to identify those performance gaps, come up with performance recommendations to address them. And it actually brings up another important point which was a driving factor with selecting this topic for the current white paper. We mentioned QAPI a short time ago, and now that QAPI is a regulatory requirement for many licensed aging services settings, it's actually encouraging us to move the analytic part of performance improvement out of the investigation process and move it into QAPI. And we felt that was so important today because it was once taught to gather your facts, collect your evidence, analyze, and do your performance improvement recommendations, and then um, execute change, all as part of that investigation process. But today, with the regulatory requirements and trying to protect things from discovery, Mm -hmm. it's actually better if we put a separation in from the fact-finding investigation and the performance improvement-related QAPI work. What, what makes it better? Like, what, what's, the, what's the distinction there in terms of, you know, putting that line there? You're still doing the same steps in the same order, I'm guessing. Is it that we've got different people doing them or we've got a different um, uh, regulatory process invoked? But what's the distinction? So one of the things that we do want to pay attention to from a systems thinking perspective is that depending on who's doing that investigation, it can introduce certain biases. For example... If I'm the departmental manager where the incident occurred, I might introduce certain bias in that investigation, which can influence everything that happens afterwards. Mm. So by separating out the investigation piece and thinking about who we assign those responsibilities to and the performance improvement piece, we can actually help protect that system or that process from some of those biases. Mm. But even more so, With the regulatory environment today, by having QAPI processes, we can start to protect the work that we do in QAPI as quality improvement work product, which can, in certain states and depending on the laws in that state for peer review, help protect that work from discovery. Gotcha. Okay. 
So, you know, we've talked about a couple different objectives that come out of an incident investigation, uh, right? We want to understand what happened. We want to uh, make sure it doesn't happen again, right? We want to protect future individuals, and we want to protect the organization if there's some kind of claim or litigation. Do these different goals ever come into conflict with one another? And if they do, how should an organization try to manage balancing that conflict? They absolutely do, and it ties directly back to the conversation we just had. Yeah. So obviously, one of the outcomes we'd like to see from good, thorough, well-conducted investigations is to prevent similar future incidents and the harm that can go with them. So oftentimes, by delving into a, an incident or adverse event, we can look at the fact pattern behind it, what was involved, contributing factors, and start to re-sculpt our organizational care delivery processes to try to prevent it. That said, though, by collecting all that information, should litigation arise, it can make that information available mm. to plaintiff's attorneys or others in the litigation process. And so while in one hand we're trying to prevent the next similar incident and prevent the harm that might come from it, on the other hand, we also know we're conducting processes, collecting data, and producing information that, if brought into a litigation process, could hurt the organization and some of their litigation and claims management processes. So, right, in an ideal world, I would love to wave a wand and say, forget about the part where it might get discovered. Just gather all the information and be super transparent, and let's stop the next incident of harm and the one after that. Uh, but how do we really balance that in the real world? Because that probably is not realistic. That's a great question. And it's this separation between the fact-finding investigation mm. and then handing that information to the Quality Assurance and Performance Improvement Committee to actually do the analytics because there is more protection when it becomes quality improvement work product. Gotcha. In other words, we're more able to make an argument to say this information is being used to improve our, our performance and therefore it's protected. So it is truly that separation and at the very heart of this white paper and why we decided to address this topic now. So in, in this upcoming white paper, I know we have lots of tips and, and recommendations for how to uh, approach incident investigations. What are maybe two or three of, of what you think are the most important and, and why? It's a great point. And we'll start with the first one from the very beginning. Take the time to design policies and practices to help guide your employees. At the end of the day, when there is an incident, there's a lot that goes on immediately following that incident. From notifications, starting the investigatory process, letting primary care physicians know, but of course, most importantly, right afterwards, getting care for the person or persons that were involved in the incident. So I think it's so important to realize that by at taking the time to design these guidelines, it helps staff manage a very complex and complicated time just after an incident. Another thing, it ties back to the discussions we just had about fact-finding, quality improvement, and the legal issues that surround this. We strongly recommend that provider organizations treat their local counsel as partners in this process, mm -hmm. get feedback from local legal counsel to design these policies and guidelines, and help design those organizational processes to conduct investigations. One of the things that the white paper talks about is whether or not witness statements versus interviews are the best course of action. Mm -hmm. 
there's a myriad of issues that go with different tools that, that are found in an investigator's toolbox, including the forms that we use to document things. So your local legal counsel can help navigate those legal issues and build the best case should the need arise to make an argument for protection. How common is it for organizations to have that close relationship with their legal counsel? Like, Is this, is this a, a big change in mindset or is it, yeah, we're only coming to you if we have a claim? I think it varies. Sure. And oftentimes it just depends on the organization and the history it's had with claims management and litigation. It is definitely one of those things, though, don't wait until you need it. Right. Having that relationship with local legal counsel, involving them in the design, helps them know the practices you're putting place within your organization. But then also when something does go wrong, and it will at some point, right. you have some a trusted partner that you can contact. So, you know, Vic, one way um, we always try to end the, the podcast is by focusing on one or two things that listeners can do, you know, right away, today, now, uh, because I imagine that things like evaluating policies and procedures, getting my, you know, building that relationship with legal counsel, all of those things, you know, they take time to build up and develop. So what's something if I'm a risk manager or if I'm a quality director that I can go do this afternoon as soon as this podcast ends? So to kind of break it down and make it real... I think it's important to remember that an incident report is where we tend to um, actually put the facts that we gather. And so one of the places a provider organization can start is to actually take their incident form, look at the fields, the information they're looking to collect, and start to sculpt their investigation process around that. Because ultimately, the facts you gather during the investigation should also help you in the incident reporting process. And if it's not, then you find some performance gaps that you can start to work on. Sounds good. All right, Vic, thanks so much. You can download the upcoming Systems Rethinking White Paper, Incident Investigation in Aging Services, from the ECRI Institute website. Be sure to subscribe to Smart Healthcare Safety on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts to make sure you see our latest episodes. We welcome your feedback. Please visit us at ecri.org slash podcasts or email us at ecri-podcasts at ecri.org.